Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much, man. You're, you're a welcoming church. You really are. Uh, and I want you to know that uh, you, you receive people well. So thank you all for having me. Um, my name's Stephen Matson. Grateful to be here. Truly, it's a blessing. I'm encouraged. Uh, I love being able to go to different churches. Um, you know, I've, I've been pastoring for, for almost 10 years, and you don't always get opportunities to go other places. And so it's so awesome to see how God is at work in other places around the triangle. Um, it's been great to get to know Pastor Brian, Pastor Dylan. You guys are blessed, all right? You guys uh, have healthy leaders who love the Lord. They use language like uh, Team Jesus. In fact, your worship team huddled this morning, and we, we literally put our hands in, and we said, you know, Triangle Fellowship. They're rooting for other churches, and you don't see that all the time, and I love that. I love that your church cares about uh, sending and multiplying. Guys, that's a big deal, and I want you to be encouraged by that. Um, so shout out to Pastor Brian. He's watching. Thank you to Pastor Dylan for the opportunity to be here. Um, just a quick intro, and we'll dive in, but I'm, I'm Stephen. As Pastor Dylan said, um, I, I'm here with my wife of, of 10 years as of last week, uh, which, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, we have three kids, Jaden, Noah, and Ella. Jaden is 11, Noah's six, Ella's four. Um, and I always qualify this because the religious people are quick to do the math. You know, we've been married 10 years. Our oldest is 11. He was adopted uh, a few years, a couple years ago. Um, and uh, actually, that's how I got connected with Pastor Brian. It was in the foster world. And so um, it's neat to see, man, how, how God brings people together. But, but New City, let's dive in. We're going to be in uh, the book of Jeremiah together. You can turn to Jeremiah. If you can find Psalms, you'll go Proverbs and Isaiah, then the book of Jeremiah. Is my mic okay? We good? Sound good out there? Okay. Jeremiah chapter 29. The message this morning is, is titled, The Call of the Exiles. All right, The Call of the Exiles. The, the title alone for us is meant to emphasize two things. It's really the, the two kind of main points of the sermon today that we want to take away is one, that you and I are exiles, all right? Not a, not a status we typically think about, but we want to step into that identity this morning, right? Because the Bible calls us, as New Testament Christians, it calls us exiles, all right? And we got to figure out what that means and how to live as an exile. But it also uh, tells us that we have a purpose, right? We are, an, we are exiles that have a calling on our life. Now, by definition, exiles are, are usually people who kind of stand on the outskirts, right? They're strangers. They're foreigners. They don't, they don't know their place. And so they tend to kind of keep their distance, right? But, but while this world is not our home, God has given us a, a clear direction, right? An intention and a purpose for our life. And so we want to step into that. And so this morning, I hope that you'll allow me to, to challenge you a little bit, really just through God's word. This is not me coming to, to challenge you on, on what Stephen has to say, but on, on what God has to say. Now, let's read together. Uh, and, and then we'll dive in to our text. Read with me, starting in verse 4, and we'll just read through verse 7. Verse 4, this is what the, the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Now he's talking about, he's not talking about intermarriage with other nations. He's talking about within the nation of Israel, right? He says, multiply there, do not decrease. Verse seven, pursue the well-being of the city I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it thrives, you will thrive. 
you will thrive. Now, church, to be clear then, our goal this morning as we work through this text is to really develop a a clear picture of what it means to be Christians who are in the world, but not of the world, right? I mean, that's a, a, a phrase you've heard. But let's be honest, that's, that's the great challenge in the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, we can sit here week after week and absorb theology and content and instruction. But man, r- what has Jesus actually called us to do? To live that, right? And that's when it's hard. And so we want to we develop a picture this morning of what it looks like to be Christians who are living intentionally and purposefully in a, in a world that we don't even belong in. Our citizenship is elsewhere. So let me do this. We'll give, let me give a little context for you that gives perspective, and then we'll jump into some kind of main points, right? We've dropped ourselves into a story. We don't know what's going on, so maybe some perspective will be helpful. So at this point where we just read, at this point in history, um, Babylon is kind of the dominant military power. Israel is uh, in a state of rebellion, right? No surprise there. We see that cycle happen with them. Uh, And so God actually uses Babylon as this instrument of judgment uh, against Israel and through Babylon brings a lot of these, uh, the Israelite people into captivity. Now, if you see at the beginning of chapter 29, King Nebuchadnezzar has a hand in this and he's actually thinking strategically as he brings these captives into his land. He begins to single out certain classes of people, right? The, the influential. He's talking about the prophets and the priests, right? And the, the court officials, the craftsmen, the, the metalsmiths. Why would he go after these people? He's going after the influencers, right? Those who kind of shape society. For us, it's, um, I don't know, who, who, who shapes our society? I mean, everyone from megastar athletes to politicians to YouTubers and TikTokers. Isn't that crazy? TikTok has an influence on our world, But he's going after this certain class because he knows if he can get them to assimilate into his culture, then it give it two generations and that whole nation's gone. Because all of a sudden they lose their distinct identity. They lose their distinct beliefs. They look no different than the pagan cultures around them. This is death by assimilation. Which, by the way, is Satan's plan for you. Let me just remind you, right? Satan doesn't need you to to go cheat on your spouse today. He needs to lead you to that one little baby step that will get you there eventually, right? It is death by assimilation. It is the process of slow and subtle decline. And that's what King Nebuchadnezzar has in mind as he brings these people into captivity. Assimilate. When my wife moved here 10 years ago from Oklahoma, any other Okies in the house? No. <laughs> she, uh, she brought with her, her her sports allegiances, right? Boomer Sooner Nation. And we watched them lose game one of the College World Series last night. But, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to tell her, no, you, are, you, are, you live here now. You need to be present and you need to assimilate into the, the UNC Tar Heel way of life. And <laughs> guess I'm not being invited back here. Um, and, and, but, she, but she won't do that, right? She's, she's holding on to these past allegiances. And then even in the process, she's kind of adopted NC State as her, as her go-to team. And, <laughs> okay, maybe we are coming back. But I've tried to get her to assimilate into that way of life. That's, that's what's taking place here. He wants them to look no different than the surrounding culture. Now, the Jews, they might be rebellious, but they're not stupid. 
They know what's taking place. They understand this. This is not uncommon. The big nation conquers the little nation. It happens all the time. They understand what's at place. So, so as they're mobilized, they don't actually root themselves in the city. They settle themselves on the outskirts along the Kibar River, and they begin to kind of set up camp there. And while they're doing this, they have this little lie in their mind. If you back up into 28, chapter 28, we see this false prophet named Hananiah, and and he's telling them things like, hey, this exile, it's not going to be that long. Just hold on for a little bit. It'll be over before you know it. And of course, they're like, yeah, that sounds great, right? Which this is us. This is how we operate. We hear whatever kind of tickles our ears and we're like, yeah, yeah, I'll grab onto that. I'm not, I'm not even going to check the source sometimes, but, but he's, he's speaking lies. And this is where we pick up. Jeremiah comes. The Bible says he rebukes Hananiah. Hananiah dies because of his rebellion against God. And Jeremiah comes to the people and says, this is what God has to say. All right, I'm not coming with my opinions and my strategies. Let's, let me just tell you what God has to say. And let me just remind us this morning as we are bombarded with information and, and news sources and we don't even know what's true and what's not real or what's fake. Man, can we just rest right now in the, the truth of God? Right? There's a lot of anxiety that kind of swirls around in us. Let's just anchor ourselves for a minute on what God has to say about our situation. So first, he gives three instructions, guys. Three instructions that I think apply to us, and we'll walk through those. He tells them first, hey, take up residence. Take up residence. What does that mean? Look at verse five again. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Any gardeners in here? Anybody growing anything? All right, like we're all going to die if, if grocery stores <laughs> shut down. Um, I don't garden either. I, I go to Sprouts for, for these things. But hey, plant gardens, eat that produce, find wives for yourselves, he says in verse, verse 6, right? H- have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. In other words, make it your home. Make it your home. Settle in, like hang out that live, laugh, life, son. live, love, life. What is it? Live, laugh, love, son, right? Settle in. Make it your home. I don't want you to be a tourist. You and I are not tourists. We're not called to relate to the city as people who simply consume and take and observe and stand at a distance. He's telling them, hey, move on in. Make this place your home. Notice twice in this verse, in these verses, he says, I have placed you here which is confusing. What do you mean you've placed me here? We're in, we're in exile. But I just, as a side note, I want us to see the sovereign hand of God, how he's involved in their placement. We sang about it, right? We sang, I'm questioning, and, and Kevin will have to help me. I'm questioning where God has placed me, right? I love that we're proclaiming that together because we, we might not love our circumstances, but we can trust that God has a hand in it. And he has a hand in this time of exile. He has placed them there. But the beginning of 29 says Nebuchadnezzar did it. But now God says, I did it. Who did it? Yeah. God uses the social powers of that day to wield this together like a chessboard. And he's at work. And man, don't, make, don't think for a second that he's not involved in your situation, in our national situation, in our global situation. So his hand is at work. Now, back into the text. God gives this instruction. Take up residence. This is shocking advice. Right? They would have been receiving this thinking, that's insane. Right? In fact, they might have expected God to say the opposite. Something like, hey, guys, good job. Like, you didn't 
go all in and assimilate into their culture. You stood at a distance like, I'm proud of you. But man, if you've, if you've read the Bible, you find that God is in nature, not a God who stands back, right? He's intimately getting involved and he's not scared to get his hands dirty. He's always going to enter the mess. Like that's who he is. Like that's a part of his character. He doesn't stand at a distance. And so naturally guys, he's going he's gonna to lead his people into that direction. So instead of encouraging them to keep their distance, he reminds them, hey, this is a, this is a season with purpose and intention. Church, there's purpose in your placement, right? There's purpose in your placement. Just because you're in exile doesn't mean you're irrelevant. Just because you're at a place in life where everything has changed doesn't mean that there's not a purpose in it. So the call here is, is to embrace the situation that they're actually tempted to grow bitter toward, right? God calls them to reside instead of reject. And I, we'll see this again, but I love how God speaks directly to that human emotion that comes up immediately in a situation like this, right? When things are different, when things change, when things are not how we like them, what do we naturally respond with? We want to avoid it, escape it, numb it, change it, right? Like nobody in here is like, I love when my life gets turned upside down. Want more of that, please, right? Like, we're always a people who, who reject that, but God knows immediately that's going to be their broken emotional response. So I'm going to meet it head on, and I'm just going to tell them, hey, settle in. Make it your home. I want you to reside well. I don't know your situation. I don't know where you are, but I want you to just trust and find rest in the fact that there's purpose in your placement. God has placed you in it, and you might be saying, no, 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 my situation is more broken and messed up than you even know. Well, can I just give you hope that God is far bigger than any of your brokenness and he is far greater than, than any of your sin or any of your failure that you might ex be experiencing right now. And I want you to know that there's purpose in it and he's a God who redeems. He is a God who, who wants to enter into that season with you. Now, you might be saying, Stephen, I'm not quite making the connection here. This is, a, this is an Old Testament text, right? This is a people uh, who, who lived a long time ago. What does this have to do with us. Well, church, even though this is a, a temporary exile, it's giving us a, a permanent picture of what it looks like for you and I as permanent exiles. How does, the, how does the New Testament address us? As exiles, right? Peter says it explicitly. Uh, James uses that language in his introduction. Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ, right? Meaning that our, our citizenship is elsewhere. The New Testament word for exile is resident alien. Resident alien, meaning you and I live in a place that is not our home. It is foreign to us. Many of you probably moved to Raleigh from somewhere else. There's not a lot of true locals. Anybody born and raised in Raleigh? All right. A couple, few more than I would have expected. But for the most part, man, a lot of us move here from somewhere, right? Again, my wife moved here from Oklahoma, and she moved from Tulsa, and she came here 10 years ago, and to this day, still wants to talk about the trees. All the trees, they're so tall, they're everywhere. I'm claustrophobic because of the trees. I'm like, I get it, I don't, I don't know what to do about it. You know, for me, I, I never thought twice about it, right? But she's coming over and saying, this is different. And maybe you moved here and you're like, man, this city's different, it's not, it's not like home, and you've kind of experienced a little bit of what it, it's like to, to not feel completely uh, 
in touch with that culture. Maybe this city is a little more conservative than you're used to, a little more religious than you're used to. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's more progressive, more liberal than you are used to. Either way, there's this tension that comes when you come into a new city and you're like, I, I don't know exactly how to settle into here. Well, the answer is, according to the Bible, is not to fully assimilate into it, is it? Not to normalize the things that the culture wants to normalize, but it's also not to stand back and disconnect and avoid it all and create our own little Christian bubble. It's not that either, right? It's to reside well. In fact, it's, it's the phrase that everybody hates, embrace the tension. Embrace tension. Nobody likes to embrace tension. We spend every day trying to get rid of tension, but there's an aspect of the Christian life as an exile where we're called to actually embrace tension. Tim Keller says it like this. He said, God called the Jewish exiles to embrace the tension of the city for the sake of God's glory. And this is exactly what today's Christians are called to do as well. And the way that we embrace tension is, again, not by removing ourselves from culture, nor is it assimilating into culture, but it's a whole nother way. It's actually embracing that tension and residing well, finding purpose in your placement for the glory of God. You and I tend to bounce one way or the other. We often can be like these Israelite people who settle on the outskirts, and we think, man, I'm going to hang out with the people who think like me, look like me, you know, believe like me. It's just easier, right? And I'll take everything society has to offer and I'll make a Christian version of it. And then I never have to engage anybody who's different than me. And some of us are like, no, nah, that's not right. And we go the other way and we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to relate to culture. And we, we say the things like, so I can reach people for Christ. And really what we end up doing is becoming culture. And we just sort of blend in. And the Bible says, no, 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 there's another way. There's a way to reside well where God has placed you without compromising your witness and removing yourself from society to the point where we're irrelevant altogether. Martin Luther had a phrase, a Latin phrase that he used, simul justis et peccator. All right, I tattooed it on my arm. You can do that if you want. <laughs> it means simultaneously justified and sinful. And he's capturing the, the reality that we live in as believers. We are both fully justified in Christ, yet, man, we're broken too at the same time. There's a tension that exists in your life that you've got to embrace. We are black and white thinkers, and we like to categorize everything. But to be an exile in a foreign land means there's an element of tension that you've got to step into and own for us now, currently. Yesterday even, no, Friday, we... Many of us are celebrating the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, right? And we've got to remember, man, there's a tension that's at play here now. We don't just get to stand back and celebrate. How do we, how do we step into the tension of, okay, now we've got, we got to love these moms who've had abortions. We've got to love these, these women with unwanted pregnancies. How do we step into that? It's real easy, guys, to stand back and say, no, that's not how it should be. Well, can I remind you that Jesus looked at you and said, that's not how it should be. But he moved closer to you, didn't he? He didn't stand back. He didn't throw stones. He didn't cast judgment. He moved to you. He got involved. He saw the tension and he embraced it. Now, let's keep moving on. We want to we reside well. A part of that means owning your placement. It means trusting God puts you there. It means embracing the tension. Next, moving toward verse 6. Notice I didn't read the, the actual 
a moment ago, I didn't finish verse six. He says this, God says, multiply there, do not decrease. You see that right at the end of verse six, multiply there, do not decrease. In other words, not only is God calling them to, hey, settle in and make it your home, but he's calling them to reproduce, right? He's, he's saying grow. So residing should lead to replicating. All right, I, I come from a Baptist background. I'm gonna have a lot of R's. Y'all just bear with me. Residing leads to replicating. Now, for them, that was primarily through childbearing, right? And for us as the church, we can do that as well. But primarily multiplication for us is through discipleship and evangelism. But the point that, the point he's making, I, I, I find interesting because there's really, there's an underlying promise there. And that's what I want to just pay attention to for a moment, right? Because God can't look at you and say, hey, grow and flourish and thrive if there's not this underlying promise of, hey, I'm with you always, right? Hey, I am a God who never leaves or forsakes. I'm a God who never abandons. And, and so the, the fact that he's telling them, go multiply, go increase, don't decrease, don't fizzle out, is a reminder that he's with them, that he's present, that there's purpose in it. Isn't it crazy that in the midst of exile, in the midst of a situation that 10 out of 10 times leads to a slow death. God says, no, 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 I got you. I'll put you there and we're, gonna, we're not even gonna maintain. We're not going into coast mode. We're going into grow mode, right? We're gonna thrive actually in the very season where you thought you were going to fizzle out and die. This is how God works. So in the midst of Babylonian exile, when all these thoughts are swirling around in their mind of we're done, right? This is probably the end of, of my people. And they start letting fear creep in. What happens when fear creeps in to our situations? How do we respond? What's the emotion that kicks in? Preservation. We tighten our grip. We lock it down, right? Because in our mind, if nobody else is going to help us, then we got to help ourselves, man. And we're, I'm going to tighten my grip on what I've got. And I'm going to, I'm going to hunker down and just maintain until I, I can breathe again, or I can, or I feel ease at ease again. And God's saying, no, no, no. Again, he meets them right there, and that emotion, that natural fleshly emotion that comes up in our fear, and he says, nope, I want the opposite. It's not maintenance mode. It's time to grow. It's time to flourish. Multiplication happens when we move in faith, guys, not fear. To use sports language, we have to be a church that is not always just sitting and playing defense. We want to be offensively minded, right? How many times have you watched your favorite football team lose a game at the end because they go into prevent defense trying to stop the other team from scoring. I can tell you as a Panthers fan, a lot of times, <laughs> a lot of times. Why? Because it's no longer about execution. It's about prevention. We want to step into this place of being on offense and mobilizing as the church. And that's why I love Pastor Dylan. I love your heart, New City, that you care about churches outside of these walls. You want to empower others. You want to encourage others. And I've been so encouraged by you all and by your pastors. Think about Matthew 16. Jesus gives a promise about the church, right? He says, hey, I will, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he gives us this picture of who's on offense and who's on defense. Who's on offense? Well, the church, right? The church is the one, are the ones being mobilized. The gates of hell stationary. Gates don't move. So the question then becomes, are we a people who are moving in such a way that we are pushing back darkness and we are busting down the gates of hell, right? 
Are we more concerned with preserving this cultural version of Christianity? Or are we ready to move forward and bust down the gates? I think about the church in Acts. And we, we see, if you've ever looked in Acts, man, you just see an absolutely unstoppable force. Like nothing could stop them. And they didn't have near the resources we had, right? Or, or even the robust theology, man. They, but they were just unstoppable. Like the government couldn't shut them down. Discouragement couldn't shut them down, right? Persecution couldn't stop them. And then you get to Paul and you're like, what do you, what do you even do with a guy like that? I mean, they would, they would beat him and he'd praise God, right? They'd throw him in jail. And he'd lead everybody to Christ. They'd threaten to kill him, right? He'd be like, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good actually. To live as Christ, to die as gain. What do you do with a guy like that? What do you do with a church like that? Right? A church that's ready to step into moving forward, embracing that tension, replicating. One pastor says it like this. He said, too many Christians are no longer fishers of men, but keepers of the aquarium. Perhaps the reason that the church in our country has been declining for, for decades is because we've slowly exchanged this call to make disciples with this call to keep disciples. We just want to Keep the right people happy. And look, that's not even a rebuke, man. Like, I, I'm preaching to myself. Like, I get it. It's easier to just keep certain people happy than to really go get your hands messy and go get involved in other people's lives. Like, I get that. I'm preaching to myself too, but we want to be a people who replicate. And replication happens when we're on offense. It happens when we're mobilized. It happens when we buy into the mission and the purpose that God has called us to as a church. We are a people who replicate. So next, let's move on to the next one here. As we go into verse seven, replication then leads to redemption. That's one of my favorite words, redemption. Replication leads to redemption. So God has a purpose in multiplying, right? And it's not because he's a, just a, a strictly a numbers guy. It's not so he can stroke his ego. It's not so he can feel good about what he's doing. It's to spread his glory. It's to see the reverse of sin take place so that that curse is lifted, Sociologist Rodney Stark, he writes about early Christians in his book called The Rise of Christianity. And I think it speaks to the redemptive nature of our faith. He says this in his book, he says, to, to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. He said, to cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To, to cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a, a new basis for social solidarity. So historically, we can, we can just see a little picture of it right here. Historically, we are a people who enter into brokenness for the sake of redemption. It is because of redemption, the redemption we have in Christ, that we are then compelled to move into brokenness, not stand at a distance. Verse 7 is a, is a countercultural calling that we need to embrace, right? When it comes to redemption, the only way we see it happen is through this countercultural Christian ethic. God says, pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. 
Instead of making excuses about why we shouldn't do that, God says, no, I want you to do that. And you've got to do it counterculturally. You've got to do it in a way that doesn't look like everybody else. What does that look like? Church, for us, following Jesus, it means loving our neighbor when there are political opposite. My neighbor directly next to us where we live is an atheist and certainly holds different political views than I do. And I'm doing everything I can to build a bridge, right, instead of build a wall. We want to be a people who are building bridges, loving our neighbor. And we want to engage our community instead of asking them to engage us, right? For 50 years, the church has been saying, hey, come to us, come to us. Well, guys, it's not working anymore. We got to go to them. That's countercultural in and of itself. Let's be a church who's going to others. Countercultural ethic means that we're not adding another voice of outrage to a culture of outrage. And guys, I get it. I'm mad too. There's a lot of stuff that I see on the internet and the news, and I'm like, I can't even wrap my mind around it. But we're not called to solve problems by yelling louder than the other person. It means we're not contributing to the sarcasm that tears down those we disagree with. And I, I love a good Facebook meme as good as the other guy, next guy, right? But hey, instead of trying to get a laugh out of all the little people who think just like you do, man, let's just let's break down walls instead of build up walls. Let's expand beyond our borders. It means that we're willing to listen when everybody else wants to yell. It means that we care more about a person's soul than proving a point. Pursuing the well-being of the city, new city, should be motivated by our desire for redemption, not control, not power, not recognition, but to see the effects of sin conquered by the power of Christ. Peter says it this way. We're almost done. Peter says it this way. He says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from... Sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. In other words, if we're living our way within this countercultural ethics, seeking redemption, it will lead to the glory of God being made known. I want to step into that, that countercultural life with you all. I want to live in such a way that people see us not as outsiders that are irrelevant, nor as people who have forsaken all of the sacredness of our faith, but as a people who believe strongly that God has you here for a purpose. I'll close with this, just a little picture that I think is being painted right here in Jeremiah. 600 years after this is written, we will see God himself do exactly what he's just asked his people to do, right? We have a God who came and resided among us, right? We have a God who came and replicated. We have a God who came for the purpose of redemption. He became an outcast and an exile so that we could become citizens, right? He, he, forsook, he forsook his own safety so that he could reach the nations, Galatians tells us that he was born under a woman, born of the law. Why? To redeem those born under the law so that what? We might receive adoption as sons and daughters of the king. That's the point. We're redeemed. We worship a God who wants to make all things new. We sang about it. That's good news. So I want to challenge you in that direction and encourage you in that direction to step into this way of life that is 
that means you're in exile. It means there's a little tension that comes with that, but there's a lot of purpose in it. And the purpose is, is to see the glory of God expand and the curse of sin reversed. And so that's my prayer for you, New City. That's my prayer as we plant uh, in Morrisville and launch in January. Uh, I ask that you would pray for us. Um, Pastor Dylan told me, you know, you're, you're welcome to ask anybody to join you. And I said, okay. I think God told me that Kevin's coming. Uh, <laughs> Margaret, where are you at? <laughs> um, no, but seriously, if, if, the, if, you even, if you live over there and the Lord is, is, is leading you to be a part of a new work, come talk to me. But if not, then man, pour into this group, pour into these people, invest your life into the, the local church, and let's watch the hand of God move in powerful ways. All right, would you pray with me, New City?